You can uh, turn back to the book of Job, chapter 1, as we uh, begin. As you're turning there, uh, one of the things that I've done the last several weeks in preparation for school was a lot of reading. Um, Any of you that have been to school or maybe some of you that have been to seminary or grad grad school know that reading makes up a large part of that. Uh, One of the books I read, I probably read about six or eight different books on basically on sanctification, how a believer grows and changes to be more like Christ. And um, one of the authors gave this, it wasn't really a definition, but it was a perspective on, on sanctification, on growth. What is sanctification? What is Christian growth? And he gave this perspective, and it just kind of struck in my mind. He, he said that sanctification... I like to take what people say and put it into a picture. So uh, this is what he said, and I came up with this picture. Uh, He said that sanctification is a narrowing of a gap, okay? A narrowing of a gap between the truth, and we'll just put there from God's Word, because that's where we get truth, the truth that we know, and the way that we live. So what he was saying is, sanctification is the narrowing of the gap between the truth that we know and the way that we live. And what he was saying by that is, the more that we live in light of the truth that we know, that's growth. Does that make sense? I thought that was very helpful, very, very helpful um, way of putting it, and, and obviously I wouldn't say that's all that sanctification is, but that's certainly a good way to think about it. Because sometimes, sometimes here's what we do. Sometimes we make sanctification this, isn't it? Don't we do that? I'm growing in Christ because I'm learning stuff. And learning stuff is very good, right? Learning God's Word is very good. That's part of it. But that's not growth. Growth is learning God's Word, learning His truth, being challenged to... Um, uh, to know God and His Word more, and then to live in light of what we're learning. And as that gap narrows between what we know and the application, we, we can just call this application. I want to summarize it in one word. As that narrows, we in fact grow to be more like Christ. Because, think about this, Jesus Christ lived in perfect conformity to the Word of God all the time, right? That's what he did. So being like Christ means the narrowing of that gap. So in light of that, what I want to do is take what we've learned in Job and spend this whole time just talking about application. Okay, We've learned lots of stuff. We've been challenged uh, in Job on a number of fronts. We've talked about suffering, we've talked about worship, talked about uh, justice, those three main themes. And what I want to do is just to focus our time today on how we apply what we've learned in Job to our prayer life. This has been one of those things rattling around in my head for months, and it just seemed like a good time since we had come to a a stopping point to do this. Um, Let me give you two questions that will help us think through our time together, okay? Let's say, let's say that you lived in Job's day, okay? You lived in Job's time, and Job was a friend of yours. 
and you heard, you didn't get an email, you didn't get a text message, you didn't get a phone call, you probably didn't even get mail, you heard as information traveled out by word of mouth, largely in those days, maybe by a letter, that your friend Job was sick and had experienced terrible trial. Let me ask you this question. Well, there's two questions there. (laughs) I'll ask you the first one. What do we learn about suffering in Job that would inform us as to how we might have prayed for Job? You're the friend. You're back there. How does what we've learned so far in Job, how does that change and impact how you might have prayed for Job if Job had been your friend? Okay? Good question. And then more relevant for us today as we're kind of thinking, well, what would I tell him? If I was sitting there, he's on the ash heap, and here's my friend, I don't recognize him. More to the point for us, how does what we learn in Job transform how we pray for those who are suffering? Okay, that's what I want to talk about today. And Lord willing, and you guys can help me stay on track here, what I want to do, uh, we have lots of people who we know right now who are suffering in our church, don't we? Uh, Let's think of some people. We've got Jared Hughes waiting on a back surgery, and he's had two delays now. Okay, and he's living uh, nine, ten years old with major back pain, and it continues to be put off. Okay, We can think of um, uh, uh, Joe Rep's uh, brother, cancer, all sorts of challenges there. Think about Caroline's mother, the constant pain that she's in. Um, and and you know, they keep giving her treatment, and nothing is bringing relief. And uh, Think about Sam Nong over in Cambodia with the condition he has, a young man with a very serious medical condition, trying to be faithful and enduring that with, in a place where he doesn't have the medical options that we have. Um, and all of you know people that are suffering, right? All of you know people, you know, friends and family, parents, kids. Um, how are we going to pray for them? And, and here's how we typically pray for them. Lord, um, would you uh, help them to get better? Okay? And that's a good way to pray. But, but I want to suggest to you that what we've learned in Job should radically change how we pray for people that are suffering. Okay, So we're just going to kind of not go too deep in the text. We've already talked about all this stuff, but we're just going to go and we're going to apply it to our prayer life. Okay? Are we good? Number one. And whoever put together my PowerPoint, uh, that was me, uh, didn't do that right. So, so let's just uh, take these one at a time, okay? And don't, don't look ahead. Don't look ahead. Okay, you can look ahead. But. Job chapter 1. You guys know the story. Um, for those of you that are visiting or new, uh, I'm sorry, there's so much here that we've covered. We've been doing this for, for months and uh, try to, try to um, unpack some of the points so that you can follow along. But um, we're uh, 14 or 15 chapters into the book of Job now. Uh, Job chapter 1, that's when the first wave of trial hits. Uh, in, in one day, he loses his servants. He loses his basically his finances, his well-to-do, with all his farmland, all his crops. Uh, he loses all of his children in one day. And this is his response in chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I, this has been several weeks now, but 
you read that in light of what happened to him and you go, how on earth does he say that? And he's dead serious there. He's not, he's not being, making light of it. He's not joking around. He really, really believes that. And in the midst of terrible suffering, he cries out and says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And there's only one explanation for that. A man in that type of suffering only has one explanation for how he can possibly say that. And that is that he viewed everything in his life as a gift of grace. God gave, well, that's grace. God took away, that's grace. If, if what I really deserve is God's judgment and condemnation, that's what I deserve. And God graces me with a family. God graces me with health. God graces me with a job. God graces me with friends. God graces me with provision. That's all grace. And when we look at life as everything I have is grace, then when God in His kindness chooses to take it away, we don't get angry. We don't get upset. We say, what a gracious God that I enjoyed that even for a time because I don't deserve that. That's the first way we can pray for people in suffering, that they would view suffering through the lens of grace. Maybe their health has been taken away. Maybe a loved one has been taken away. Uh, maybe a job has been taken away. Usually suffering involves loss of something. And what we want to pray for those people is that they would see whatever they have that was taken away as a gift of God's grace. And they can have that perspective uh, that Job had there. Second thing, we see that in the same verse, is that people in suffering would worship God in the midst of the trial. We see that there in Job. That's what he says there. Uh, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's, he's worshiping God. And remember, this gets right at the heart of Satan's challenge, right? Do you remember that? Because Satan's challenge in this whole deal was the only reason Job worships you, God, is because you've made his life so good, Right? You've given him all this stuff, his family, the kids, the livelihood. He was, he was probably the, one of the richest men in this region in the day. And Satan goes to God and accuses God of basically just making his life good. And that's why Job worshipped him and challenges God. Okay, God, you take all that good stuff away. Job not only won't even worship you anymore, he'll actually curse you. And he challenges God. God, the only reason you're worthy of worship is because you make people's life good. That's, that's why. And what Job shows us from this sentence here is that's not why we worship. We don't worship because God makes our life so good. We're thankful for that. Sure, we should praise God for that. That's not why we worship. Job teaches us that the reason we should worship God is because He is intrinsically worthy of our worship. He's God. He's the, he's the God of the universe. He's the Creator. He alone. Remember, we read in Revelation, for all of eternity, what, all of eternity, what do we what do we sing? You alone are worthy. You alone are righteous. You alone are great. And we we declare His worth for all of eternity. And that's why we worship. So secondly, we want to pray for people that are suffering, that they would worship God in the midst of the trial. And along with that, again, looking still at this verse, uh, look at what he says there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Naked I came into the world, naked I leave the world. I didn't come with any stuff. I don't leave with any stuff. And we see 
we see a heart that is submitting to and delighting in God's wise, fatherly disposal in his condition. To borrow, you remember uh, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, his definition of Christian contentment. Okay, uh, That sweet, joyful, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise, fatherly disposal in every condition. It's one thing to say, I'm okay with something. I'm okay with it. It's another thing to say, I think I can get through this. It's another thing to say, you know what? I trust God and and He's good. But Job challenges us a lot further, doesn't he? He goes a step further. He says, that, that's, not, that's not as far as we need to go in suffering. Where we want to get in suffering is to the place where we submit to and delight in whatever fatherly disposal our God brings. And we see that in the book of Job. So we want to pray that people would, would do that. They would submit to and delight in whatever God's providence has brought in them. Back up and look at verse 6 for a minute with me. Look at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now stop right there. According to what we the reader get to read, what is the reason that all this bad stuff happens to Job? What is it? Because Satan challenged God. Okay, great. And and then what happened? What's that? God allowed it. Okay, God allowed it because of Satan's challenge, right? And it's interesting as we read this the readers get to know something that the characters don't, right? What is that? What do we, the reader, get to enjoy that the characters in the book don't know about? The conversation between God and Satan, right? Do you think that's a pretty important part of the book? (laughs) It's not just a a kind of a big deal because it's kind of what started all this thing, right? The characters don't know that. We get to know that. We have that perspective. The characters in the book don't know that. And, 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 and that's very, very helpful because what it does, what it does is when we think about suffering, we have to recognize that sometimes suffering comes into our life for reasons that have nothing to do with us. Okay? Now, I am not saying in making that statement that God is not using all things together for good. He's always doing this, isn't he? He he is going to work good in my life. So he does have a purpose for me. But what I am saying is, according to chapter 1, chapter 2, the main starting point of all this has nothing to do with Job. It has to do with a, a spiritual, cosmological battle going on in the heavenly places where God is going to thwart 
and to put down and to show to be in the wrong the counsel and advice and perspective of Satan himself. He is going to demean the God of the world by bringing things about in Job's life that show that Satan is a liar. Because that's not why we worship. We worship God because he alone is worthy of our worship. We need to help people to see. And, and I'm not saying you go, oh, you know, this is a Satan's attack. And but we, we don't have that perspective. You understand, if we didn't have God's special revelation, if we didn't have God's commentary on what's going on here, we would not know this. Okay? And, and we'd be, be very, very careful. We're not speculating about what's going on in people's lives. I, I hope we've learned that in Job. We don't want to speculate what's going on. But what we can tell people is this. Sometimes suffering that's going on in our life, according to God, may not be ultimately about us. And we see that in other places, don't we? Matthew 5 talks about letting our light shine in such a way that people see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Maybe, maybe the reason is God is working in me so that somebody else out here watching me will turn to God in repentance and faith. Maybe it is some, some spiritual thing going on in the heavenlies that I never know about. But we need help because what do we do in suffering? People in suffering, what do they do? They turn inward, right? And they're, they're very self-focused. And what's going to happen to me and how do I feel? And, and, and again, I'm not saying that's bad because, I mean, it's them, right? It's them going through it. But one of the things we want to do is help them to see that there are other things going on here. This isn't just about you. There are bigger, grander themes and bigger, grander schemes and plans that God has. And, and we may never know the extent of those things. But we want to live in such a way that God would be honored, whatever those purposes are. Okay, So we want to pray that people would think beyond the individual circumstances. Uh, number five, we want to pray for the family and friends affected by the trial. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. Because we don't... We, so far, we know about Job, and we know about his kids. The second wave of suffering comes in. Satan once again touches his life, and he develops this terrible disease and condition. Uh, I've told you before, he had boils all over his body. His body was black. His eyes were swollen shut. He had infections and things growing in those boils. There was no relief, no antibiotic, no topical ointment, none of that. All he could do was take a piece of broken pottery and scrape the wounds, cutting himself in order to bring some relief. Enter Job's wife. She's lost everything that she owns. She's lost their retirement, if you will, in those days. Because the land, of course, was their means of livelihood. And by losing all that, they lost all their retirement savings, basically. She lost all her kids. Some of you have lost kids. And you know others that have lost kids and how hard um, that is to go through. She lost her kids. She lost her livelihood, lost her farm, lost her servants. Now she's losing her husband. This disease was so severe, I, I kid you not, there was no doubt in her mind, she thinks, my husband's going to die, then what am I going to do? 
You know, there, there's no there's no Medicare and Medicaid. There's no Social Security. There's there's no there's no uh, death in, uh, life insurance. There's none of that in this day. If your husband died and your kids died, you had nothing. And and not not to be too graphic, but she would probably end up on the street uh, doing things that were one of the only ways a woman could survive on her own. That's what she's thinking. And it gets to her. And she cries out in verse 9 of chapter 2, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And again, let's not be too hard on Mrs. Job here. Um, I I don't take that as she's got her finger out and she's raising her voice yelling at her husband. I see her sitting on her couch, eyes filled with tears, shaking in despair, and she says, Job, will you just curse God and end this? Knowing that God would just kill him and take him home, and then the suffering would be over. She couldn't stand to watch him suffer any longer. And, of course, he responds, and based on the fact that we don't hear from her for the rest of the book, we can assume that her response to Job's exhortation was good. But, you know, one of the things we forget about is that suffering affects other people. Sometimes we forget to pray for the spouses and the children, the grandparents, the parents of the person who's suffering. And and I've talked to a lot of people going... Under, you know, going through suffering, and, and many of them will tell you this. I'm okay with this. My wife's not. I'm doing okay. My kids are struggling. I'm doing okay, but my father is so distraught over this. So as we pray, let's remember to pray for family and friends who are affected by the trial, because that's very much reality. Back up one verse to verse 8. I mentioned it a moment ago. He took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting amongst the ashes. So that's the extent of the medical treatment in those days. Uh, praise God for modern medicine. But obviously, obviously, we're going to pray for physical relief for people. Okay? And no doubt, um, if those options had been available in those days through um, medicine and whatnot, uh, we know that Job's friends would be encouraging that and praying for that. Um, I don't want to leave that out because this isn't wrong to pray for. You know, sometimes sometimes we talk about a biblical perspective of suffering and where we need to go, and let's not go too far the other extreme and say we should never pray for somebody to be healed because you know what God's doing good things in their life. Well, that's true, but that doesn't mean we don't pray. What it means is, as we pray for physical relief, as we pray for healing, as we pray for that, we balance that. See, we're, we're so out of balance. We, we pray for that 97% of the time, and then 3% of the time, we pray, well, you know, God encourages their heart. And we need to balance this out and say, as we pray for this, we need to be praying for all this other stuff. And interestingly enough, I don't want to make too strong of an issue with this, but what does Scripture primarily emphasize? in praying for people. 
it's this stuff. Again, not, not that we can't or shouldn't pray for physical relief, for healing, surgery goes well. Of course we're going to pray all those things. But Scripture's emphasis is on what's going on in their heart. And so we need to pray for that. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Enter Job's friends. Are you with me? You tracking with me? You get this? Are, are, we, are we narrowing the gap here? As we're doing this, are you thinking, here's how I need to change my prayer life. Here, here's some things I tend to overemphasize. Here's some things I need to start emphasizing. Are you doing that? Okay, we're, try, we're narrowing the gap. That's what we're trying to do here. Verse 11, enter Job's friends. Job's three friends heard all of his adversity that had come upon him. They came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their head, heads toward the sky. And they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Um, another thing we need to pray for, for people in suffering, is that they would have friends who will encourage and give godly counsel. Um, I do a fair amount of marriage counseling, and one of the biggest dangers for people that are trying to rebuild their marriage is bad counselors in those people's lives. You got some gal and she's trying to learn to trust her husband again or trying to you know, give up control to God, you know, whatever the issue is, and she's got some girlfriend or mother or daughter or friend at the office. And bless her heart, those people love them, want the best for them. No, no, no wrong motive at all. But the counsel they give is wrong. And they're trying to do what's right. And they're hearing bad counsel, wrong counsel. Have we, have we seen that in the book of Job? Have we seen any bad counsel? Guys, those, those guys we play golf with, the guys we watch the game with, guys at the office. And we open up a little bit. We don't do that a whole lot. We open up a little bit and we get ungodly counsel from our golf buddies, from guys at the office. We need to pray that people in suffering would be surrounded by godly counselors who will encourage them and love them and listen to them and walk with them. You guys know, you know what church is? You know what church is? We walk together through stuff with people. That's Ephesians 4, right? That, that's, that's a New Testament vision of the church. If, if someone in here is suffering, what do we do? We encourage them. We listen to them. We love them. We, we help them with practical things. We pray with them. We, we, we encourage and we walk with them through it. We don't walk with them a couple of steps and then say, oh, it's not gone away yet. See ya. I've got other things to do. We don't do that. We, I told somebody just a couple of weeks ago, 
a trial that was going on that, that, that is not going to end anytime soon. And just to try to encourage this person, I said, you know what? We're your church. And what that means is we are going to walk with you through this as long as it takes. That's what we do. That's, a, that's the body, isn't it? Right? Is that the body of Christ? Is that why we're here? So as we pray, let, let's pray for wise, godly counselors who will encourage. And, and you've seen <laughs> how easy it easy is it to put your theological foot in your mouth in the name of helping somebody in suffering. Out of the best intentions, hearts of gold these people had, right? And they gave ungodly counsel. They gave blasphemous counsel. They gave counsel that mocked the character of God. Good intentions, bad theology. And one of the things we see is that was a terrible temptation because these three friends that were trying to help became instruments of the enemy in the process. Next one. We want to pray that people in suffering would interpret their circumstances in light of God's Word. We could spend all day talking about this, but, but here's the flyover, okay? How we interpret circumstances in suffering is so much of the issue in terms of what we do. Look at Job chapter 4, verse 8. Here comes Eliphaz. He opens his mouth. Um, he, he can't keep his mouth closed any longer. Listen, do you remember, you remember we, we talked about this a number of times, but this is a few weeks ago. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Job, based upon my many years of experience, people get what's coming to them. We can even make it sound biblical. You reap what you sow, which is biblical, but not isolating that verse from everything else the Scripture says about suffering. And we need to pray that people would interpret their circumstances in light of God's Word. What are some of the things we've seen Job and the friends interpret? Okay, here, here's what happens to Job, okay? What are some of the things? Let's, let's share a little bit here. What are some of the things we see that both Job and the friends have said about why this is happening? What's that? He needs to confess because he's done something wrong. What else have we seen? You're being punished, okay? God's punishing you. Remember he says, Lord, you have set me as the target for your arrows. Remember that? He said that a couple of times. What else have we seen? Interpreting things wrongly. Yes, Carrie. Your kids sinned, right? That's why they died. They must have had some sin in their life. Okay, what else? Yeah, Job, Job, we see Job wrestling, don't we? He's all over the map, you know. One of the things I think is, is the most sobering deal in Job when I think about interpreting things wrongly is where Job ends up in his thinking about God. There are moments in this book, as we listen to Job, that the God that he's looking to is a monster. He's out to get him. 
What, what is it? You, you know, you keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this. You mock me, God, he says at one point. You keep punishing me with no relief. And he says on two different occasions, I think one in chapter 8 and one in chapter 14, he says, God, just leave me alone. And we say, this is the man from chapter 1 who was righteous more than anyone else in the region? This is the man that said, blessed be the name of the Lord? Here's what I want you to see. Suffering can cause you to misinterpret your circumstances and even God in such a way that you end up in a place where you aren't even believing in the God of Scripture. That's a dangerous place to be. And you know what? Suffering tempts us to do that. Because in suffering, we want an explanation. We want an interpretation. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? And when we do what Eliphaz does, we let our experience interpret what's going on instead of letting the Word of God interpret what's going on. Look out. I don't know if you'll agree with me on this. Job comes very, very close in this book to blaspheming God. He comes very, very close. And praise God, by by God's grace, he never quite gets there. And guys, um, I don't claim to have kindergarten spirituality compared to Job. I don't know how you feel compared to this guy. If that's where Job can end up, in the midst of suffering. How can us, you know, sort of the the normal average believers, um, suffering can do that. And we need to pray and pray and pray and pray. Because when you're desperate, you'll start believing things, you'll start thinking things, you'll start entertaining things that you would never do when you're not in suffering. We need to pray for people in the midst of that, that they would interpret their circumstances in light of God's Word. Kind of along with that, flip over to chapter 7. We we just mentioned that this is a a particular application of uh, what we just talked about, chapter 4, verse 8. Look at chapter 7, verse 11. Listen to his, his view of God. Verse 13, as Job is speaking to God, If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and you terrify me with visions so that my soul would choose suffocation, death, rather than my pains. Verse 18, What is man that you would examine him every morning, try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me nor let me alone? an extension of that previous point, we need to pray that they will have an accurate biblical view of God. You know, if you view God as someone who is out to get you in suffering, you will never turn to Him for help. If you view God as a monster, as, a, as someone who is up there just dumping stuff on you for the sheer joy of it, You'll never turn to Him. You'll never do what we're supposed to do. The Lord is my 
refuge, right? My Lord is that strong tower. He's the treasure hidden in the field. He's the pearl of great pride. He, he's the guy we're supposed to go to. He's, he's the one we're supposed to turn to. Remember Nahum in Nahum chapter 1? The, the, God is like the storm and here he comes in his wrath and, and yet the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, right? And he knows those who take refuge in him. We're supposed to turn to him. If we have a wrong view of God and suffering, we don't turn to the very person we need the most. Now we pray that people will have a a right view of God and suffering. Flip over to chapter 11. This is an interesting point here. As uh, Zophar jumps in here, and his counsel is not terrible, but listen, listen to what he says to Job. He says, Job, um, you need to repent, verse 14. You need to you know, figure out what's wrong and repent. And then verse 16, if you do that, then you'll forget your trouble. Verse 16, waters that have passed by you, you would remember it. Your life would be brighter than noonday. Darkness would be like the morning. Then you would trust, this is key phrase, verse 18, then you would trust because there is hope. Here's what Zophar says. You repent, God makes your life better, then you can have hope. And we've seen this, uh, Eliphaz does it also early, early on in the chapter. What these guys are telling Job is that his hope and his trust is in a change of circumstances. Job, your hope, your trust is when you... Get right with God, and then God will make your life better, and then your circumstances will be better, and then that will be your hope. Is that our hope? Is our hope a change of circumstances? One of the things that keeps Job from turning to God, and when we see it in chapter uh, 14, uh, we talked about it, or I'm sorry, chapter, where is it? Yeah, in chapter 13, verse 16, this also will be my salvation. His hope, his trust, his salvation is in a chance to go to God and plead his case in court. Whoops, sorry. Um, And in so many ways in this book, we see the friends encouraging him to seek his hope in a change of circumstance instead of hoping in God. Now let me ask you a question. Uh, do people in suffering, are they ever tempted to put their hope in a change of circumstances? <laughs> do we tend to pray for them like that's their only hope? And again, are we praying for a cure? Sure we are. Are we, are we praying that the marriage gets better? Absolutely. Are we praying for the child to come to faith? Yes, yes, yes. We pray for all that. But that's not their hope. And we pray that they would hope in God not in their circumstances changing. And along with that, we we see it, um, I just mentioned it, chapter 13, verse 16. His salvation, Job's hope, is in his chance to successfully plead his case in a courtroom to show that the God of the universe got it wrong. And that illustrates probably Job's biggest problem in the book, his pride, his selfishness, his his focus and trust in self instead of a focus and trust in God. 
Another thing we need to pray for people in suffering is that they would, we pray to keep them from temptation. Just think of all the things that people in suffering are tempted in, okay? I just put a few up here, and I put a question mark at the end because we could just we keep going for pages, okay? Let's see some of the things that we've seen in the book of Job that Job has been tempted in because of his suffering, okay? Selfishness. We just saw that, right? A focus on self, this turning inward, this I'm thinking about myself, thinking about how bad I hurt, thinking about what's going on in my life. I'm not thinking about loving God and my neighbor, one of the best things you can do, and again, don't, how you do this is so important, and we can be very sinful in how we go about doing this. But one of the things we want to do compassionately, slowly with people is to turn them from looking inward to turn them to looking upward and then outward. One of the best things you can do for someone in suffering is get them serving people, loving people. Because it turns their attention away from self. I'm not saying, you know, I've got cancer, I can't think about myself. No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is we need to help them and pray for them that they would focus on loving God and loving neighbor. What about ungodly speech? You seen some of the stuff that comes out of this guy's mouth? This righteous man? As God uses this trial to reveal his heart? We need to pray that they would avoid the temptation of ungodly speech. We've seen... Lots of that. Uh, what about accusation? Oh, haven't we seen that the last couple of weeks? He's accusing God of wrongdoing. We had a great class discussion uh, on Thursday or Friday about being angry at God. And uh, sometime in Sunday school, we'll we'll unpack that. It's rolling around in here right now. But um, how easy it is when you're hurting to accuse God. It's so easy. We need to pray that people would avoid that temptation. Hopelessness and despair. Job 3, he's saying he wishes he was never born. God would cause him to be a stillborn. Sarcasm. You remember we noticed this? He's getting sarcastic. You know, oh, if you guys were to perish, then all wisdom in the world would perish. You know, what is that? That's what he says in chapter 12, verse 1 about his three friends. We see him getting sarcastic. Sarcastic Sarcasm is, is um, cloaked bitterness, usually. Speaking of bitterness, that's the next, next one, right? Bitterness. We see him bitter in chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, mocking God, saying he doesn't care anymore, giving up, pride, just in the sense of him being unteachable. Fear and anxiety. You know how many people go on anti-anxiety meds because of a trial in their life? Lots of people. And you start worrying about that. You start what-ifing yourself to death. Anxiety, fear, what's going to That's where Job's wife was, right? What's going to happen? He's going to die. I have nothing. I have no kids. I have no stuff. I, what, what am I going to do? And the fear of that, the anxiety of that, the worry of that. We need, we need to pray for people. They would not give in to that. And finally, rejecting God. And we can fill in the blank there with all sorts of things we see, all sorts of things you guys have seen in yourselves, in friends, and family when that happens. 
And then maybe another big thing to pray for is just that they would see and embrace God's purposes in suffering. These are reviews, so I'll just go ahead and put them up here. You remember those uses of suffering that we learn in Job? That suffering, what's God's design? What's his schematic behind suffering? He's not just throwing suffering down from heaven. He's got a purpose. Let's listen to some of the things that God's doing in something. There's an instructional use. He's teaching me and instructing me. This book is about worship, justice, and trials and suffering. Those are the three things that this book is about. And God is teaching us, teaching Job through the suffering. Suffering is designed by God to teach me something. Number two, a revelatory use. Suffering reveals my heart. Is that not true? Is that not true? Like my professor Wayne Mack used to say, our hearts are like sponges. You don't know what's inside the sponge till it gets squeezed. Suffering squeezes the sponge. And, and viewed through the lens of Romans 8, when God reveals things in my heart that don't honor him, that is absolutely grace because he is relentless to make me like his son. Number three, an optometric use. Suffering causes me to spiritually see more clearly. Isn't that true? Um, Dr. Enns is going to talk about heaven this morning. The Bible goes places in, in, in Scripture where it talks about you have a heavenly perspective. Suffering helps you to see heaven. Suffering helps you to look forward to heaven. It, it bring, suffering is like putting on a pair of glasses and you go, I can see now. Because the normality of life blinds me. It makes me myopic. I can't see beyond my, my immediate you know, sort of life and circumstances and suffering. By God's grace, I start seeing things, understanding things, spiritually speaking, that, that I would never see apart from that suffering. There's an optometric use. There's a sanctificational use. That's Romans 8. God is using all things together for my good to make me more like Christ. There's an authenticating use. Suffering reveals the authenticity of my faith. That's First Peter 1, right? God's going to test me and try me so that when I come out refined like gold, what does it do? It shows me that my faith is real. That's why God tests faith. He wants us to have confidence that our faith is real. You know, test yourself. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Yeah, we need to do that. Trial and suffering is one of the ways God authenticates the reality of our faith. There's an inquisitional use. Suffering causes me to ask questions that I ordinarily would not ask. <laughs> Isn't that true? Remember several weeks ago, several months ago, actually, I had you start marking all the questions in the book of Job. Anytime you came on a question, put a little mark there. Because the questions this book asks are so good. And you know what? They're questions that we don't ordinarily ask ourselves. We, we don't ask ourselves, how can a man be right before God? We don't talk like that when life's good. We think, oh, let's go to Grumps for a burger. That's how we think. And then suffering comes and we go, how? Why? That's what God's doing. He's causing us to ask questions that we ordinarily would not ask to, to move us towards sanctification. And finally, there's a doxological use. Suffering provides a context to glorify God in extraordinary ways. Isn't that true? When you're walking through a trial and you delight in God, when you see sufficient grace, superabounding, sort of the Second Corinthians type where 
you know, my grace is sufficient for you, power is perfected in weakness, therefore I will boast about my weaknesses that the power of God might be displayed. What is that saying? That's saying God draws special attention to himself, to his grace, to his greatness, to his glory, to his sufficiency. He puts a spotlight on that in suffering in ways that we don't see when life is normal. And we need to think about that. This is about displaying the glory of God. This is about saying, you are better than my health. You are better than the salvation of my friends and my family. You're the treasure. And then finally, and this is one of the things that's just struck me. We need to pray for endurance when the trial doesn't go away. This book doesn't end in chapter 3. It ends 38 chapters later. We don't know how long that was. Job's wife thought he was going to die right away. And we see day after day, week upon week, probably month upon month of suffering. And you know what happens? We can be pretty tough in the flesh for a little while. Right? But you talk about the relentlessness of a trial the ongoing nature of a trial, when the first treatment doesn't work, when the first conversation to present the gospel results in rejection, and you have to endure. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 does not say God takes the trial away. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you will be able to endure it. The faithfulness and sufficiency of God is not that He takes the trial away. The faithfulness and sufficiency of God is that He gives me what I need to endure however long it is. Now, we need to pray.